This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 18, Marketing, with Brian Fife, Tom Westberg, and Jim Fingal. Hi, I'm Brian. This is Jim. And this is Tom. And this is the Game Theory Podcast, and Tom is going to tell us about our topic for today, right, Tom? Yeah, we're talking about video game marketing. We try to pretend it doesn't exist, or we try to ignore it, but it's changed over the years, and it really does lead us to what games we're going to choose in in lots of cases. And it has to be said, today, March 26th, is the week after PAX East in Boston that that many of us attended, and it's fresh on our minds. There was some marketing there. (laughs) Just a touch. But it's also the the sort of thing where your eyes start to glaze over 50-foot posters of dudes in, in heavy battle armor. That, you know, my take on this is going to be more and more I find it inoffensive. So one of the impressions that I take away when you talk about the giant 50-foot posters is the fact that video games as mass media have arrived. I remember it was a while ago, but walking around in New York City and seeing the whole subway walls, everything plastered with Borderlands 2 billboards. And that was a little surprising to me. Yeah, they were all over the bus stops in Boston, not just in the subway, but just the, you know, everyday walking around public space. Sure, and ads on TV, I mean, the whole thing. There was a time when this was unheard of. Well, once uh, people noticed that video game, they were taking in more than the movie industry, I, I think it was inevitable that the marketing side of it had to adjust to be of similar scope. So speaking of topical items, one of the things that comes to mind when we're talking about what's been happening recently is the whole pre-order debacle with, with SimCity and the push that game publishers are making to get people to to make that pre-order bid. So yeah, you, you sent out the Tobolds article about that. You could buy it and you could actually preload it on your machine and then the idea would be as soon as they released it, everyone could uh, put in the license IDs at the same time and, and go. And that's not uncommon. That's something that they've done on Steam for a while where if you bought a game in advance, you would get it the day of release, instantaneous, the whole nine yards. What has been developing over time, and this is part of the whole downloadable content phenomena, is all the little bonuses, tchotchkes, custom weapons that you get for pre-ordering. Well, pre-ordering in, in general, there's there's the whole build-up. Games are, again, similar to movies in that have a huge first week or two, and then they're gone. And they essentially in the remainder been anything that didn't sell. Or at least that seems to be the the perception. Other games that have a long tail and and survive for a year or two or five, those are few and far between. Most games, you make your splash, you get your several hundred million dollars, and you go on to do the sequel or you don't. And the CEO uh, rakes in his options or the CEO is laid off, as a, a recent case of... Square Enix. I'm not sure that I, I agree with that fully, though, because we're talking about games that people are going to be playing for at least a couple months, right? Whether it's a multiplayer element of some kind of military shooter, or it's a game like Skyrim that takes a couple months to play through. So it's not as if it's just you sit down for two hours and you've seen it, and boy, you better see it fast, or everybody's going to want to talk about it, and you won't know what they're talking about. But there's still the perception, because uh, even on the indie side of things, one of the big parts of indie game, the movie, was all the, the tension that the Super Meat Boy guys had when 
they thought they were going to be on the first slot of of Xbox Live so that they could make a big splash on their first day because all of the trends say that uh, you you make the most in in the first 24 hours and then it all goes downhill from there. Regardless of whether or not that's true and they and it wasn't true for them, they went on to to sell many many copies. There's certainly that perception. I don't know if if that just comes along with marketing becoming a thing that the people bring those default assumptions that come from from other media. Well, one of the reasons as a game publisher why I'd want to push pre-orders is to counter against the use market and the resale market. The more pre-orders you get, the more guaranteed sales that you have in the bag. But I think the case is getting <laughs> rougher and rougher as a gamer to say why you should sink your money on the first day to get that pre-order. I, I think it goes along lines like this. If a game goes and retails for 60 bucks, it's going to be at least three to six months before the price goes down so you may as well buy right away and get some little little prize rather than you know wait and see what happens but you know last game i pre-ordered was xcom and that's just because i'm a believer but i'm certainly glad i didn't pre-order for SimCity, even you know if it had been great topically we have a a case study here because Bioshock Infinite came out today, and Tom got it today and was playing it. So, Tom, can you can you give a testimonial? Well, I, I'm probably a testimonial for for their successful uh, marketing or PR campaign. I, essentially, they did a good job of getting reviewers in to play uh, some amount of it, and the reviews were very positive. At least the reviewers that that I uh, respect a lot. And that was enough to get me to go on Steam yesterday and pre-order it. It's an electronic download. It's not like going to buy it at a at a store and and they could run out. So I didn't need uh, need to worry about that. But it was more a matter of I know I want this. I and I and I want to play as soon as I can. Uh, I'm I'm quite happy with uh, with it. I don't feel betrayed by the the reviewers. In the case of uh, SimCity. The reviewers played effectively a different game because the servers weren't stressed, and the players did feel betrayed by the you know, the the positive reviews that within the first week all or, or many of them got got retracted, and uh, that was that was quite a debacle. But that was a function of EA not just not being ready with their infrastructure. Well, but EA can't pull it off. Blizzard can't pull it off. We know that every MMO company can't pull it off. It used to be a sort of well-known rule of thumb that it's kind of a sucker move to jump into an MMO in the, in the early days, both because it's real rough around the edges and there's queues and lines and people running around being dumb. I mean, you want to argue against that? I will a little bit. My impression of Guild Wars 2 was pretty positive. It was not flawless, but given the, the, uh, high, the crowds they had, I thought their servers did pretty well. And I would say recent World of Warcraft expansions have been very professionally handled. The Diablo people did not manage to do it right, but that, that doesn't say Blizzard in general doesn't know how. Just probably they were either uh, being too cheap because they weren't getting $15 a month out of the, the Diablo players, or that it was just a different set of server people and they didn't learn all the lessons that the uh, World of Warcraft people had learned. It's an interesting case where, I mean, perhaps these are examples of where, if, if our topic is marketing, where the marketing 
worked better than they expected. <laughs> Either they were just terrible and woefully unprepared for any amount of traffic, uh, or they got more traffic than, than they expected as a result of network effects of people playing the game and being excited about it, or the sorts of pushes that they're having to, to get it out there. But let's let's keep in mind, in some cases, game companies will try to position their technical failure as a, oh my God, so many people have loved this game that they got on and we couldn't have anticipated uh, the fans adoring us this much. We're sorry we can't let you in. There's there's a suddenly a scarcity, but as soon as we can let you let more players in, you should be uh, you know pounding on the gates to to get your keys to to join our fantastic community. And yeah, yeah, I I say that in a sarcastic way, but I do believe that that they do try to at least make lemonade out of their lemons to the extent possible when they get in the, in that sort of situation. EA didn't pull it off, especially when they threatened to ban people who asked for their money back. EA famously had one person in the organization say, well, just ask for a refund if you're not happy. And then when people did, they said, you're not getting a refund. <laughs> we don't do that. I don't know yeah. who told oh, you, you that. Can, you can ask for one if you're not happy, <laughs> yeah. but... But we're not actually going to give it yeah, to we you. Have, we have no interest in doing that for you. The engineering part of me finds it hard to believe that the demand is really unanticipated. I, I suppose if I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, there may be some kind of a Kickstarter-like model that is is happening here where you get a spike of pre-orders as soon as they become available, and then the bulk of your, your buys don't really pour in until the last day or two. I mean, you guys think that might be the case or have an opinion? Have you read something? What do you know? Yeah, I'm not really sure about the the, the SimCity side of things. Yeah, I've I I was not that interested in playing the game. So well, not even SimCity. I mean, I think Diablo's the exact same thing, where they took pre-orders, they were all set up, and the game got crushed. It was pretty clear to me that there weren't people sort of running to buy the game once the word got out. It was trashed. We talked about the reviewers playing a different game than than the players. Actually, speaking of PAX East, the Omegathon game that they had there suffered from a a similar uh, fate, you, you might say, where it was Space Team, I think, where it's the, the game where you have... Yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah, I think you have like four different iOS devices that get networked together, and you're all playing a game together, trying to get to different levels, and you're shouting out things to each other, and... And they had the, the best of intentions of having this in the Omegathon final round. They didn't test how this would function in a room with 30,000 plus uh, wireless devices because they kept losing the connection to each other. And, and I, I'm sympathetic to this on one level and on the other since Apple blew their demos and Google blew their demos in the you know second or th- I think it was a second gen iOS and, and Android rollouts. There should be somebody through this process that raises their hand and said, wait a minute, if we're on Wi-Fi, how are we going to make sure this doesn't get, get completely wrecked? It seems like a, a not uncommon failure of, of anticipation there, which it seems like you would, you would learn the best practices. But well, the, the, there, there is in many organizations now, I think, a checklist to say, what do we have on wireless? You know, what, is, it, is it crucial? Do we have a backup in these situations? Because it's not only... The clients that are on wireless, people have their own MiFi. It's now there's a ton of stuff that that comes into play to to mess up these networks. 
Yeah, you you basically cannot police it. I, I'm, unless I'm, unless you're the Super Bowl. Did you hear about this? How they Ars Technica had a fantastic article, completely off topic, about how they were pinpointing rogue wireless devices and shutting them down during the Super Bowl because they wanted to have an amazing rock solid network for the whole thing. Very cool. It's uh, worth a read. I'm not sure if it's legal, but very cool. <laughs> you can they can do whatever they want. They're the Super Bowl. <laughs> so we we've talked a little bit about pre-orders. I wanted to cover that just because. I think it's a really interesting subject, and you know the jury's still not out. I think we haven't really seen the full reaction to this. I mean, they, they keep offering small but not super meaningful incentives to, to buy the game. Well, I, I think pre-orders are just part of what is is probably crucial to many games, which is is the build-up. You know, and you know, as I said, I got suckered in by the the positive reviews. That was. But suckered in, it's not a bad thing, right? It was no, a good I'm, deal I'm not. I don't happy. regret that at all. I want to be clear. I did the, the same thing for Skyrim, that the word of mouth, uh, the reviewers, and so forth. But you know, the the slow release of art assets as much as a year before. You know, they they, they built on the the goodwill that earlier games in the Elder Scrolls series had had generated. You know, in no way did I feel. Oh, this is just another sequel, Elder Scrolls 18. Great. No, uh, I was psyched about Skyrim, and I yeah, I felt it delivered. But they they had done a good job of laying that groundwork slowly, uh, bringing out things about artwork, bringing out things about how the AI is going to be different and the combat will be different. There is yeah, there's definitely an art to that kind of a rollout. And I remember the No High Scores guys sort of bitterly remarking about how they regret linking yet another Bioshock Infinite demo, but oh my God, you have to see this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, I, even as someone who has never really gone in for the pre-order, the biggest spike of my console games is every December when I ask for them for Christmas, but it doesn't stop me from getting excited about them uh, a year in advance. And and for Bioshock Infinite, it's a good example of they, they put out a teaser trailer like two years before the game came out and in the first full trailer you know at least a, a year before it came out so they're definitely going for the long haul on on that that seemed to be something that's unique to these big com- game companies with the long development cycles though then again people were excited about fez for four years before it came out <laughs> and that actually ended up working against that game as you're moving to talk about indie games, one of the other things that we've noticed is this move to allow early access and as part of a pre-order for indie games. We don't see that often with AAA titles, but it's becoming very common with uh, smaller scale games, right? What what games are you thinking of? Because I guess the, when I've been reading about it... A, the- Minecraft. B, The Castle Doctrine. C, all of the games on Steam Greenlight that just went through that program, which I, I thought that was a, a bit much, actually. I think for, for Castle Doctrine and for Spy Party, those both took the uh, the tact of having the early alphas and like paid alphas, where you get the people who are really excited about the designers and who have maybe seen the game or, you know, in the case of The Castle Doctrine, not seen the game, but you know, you have enough faith in the designer that you're 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 willing to to pay eight to fifteen bucks to to basically be a, a playtester. Well, the thing I like about that though is they're saying we'll we'll sell you the game for half price in advance, and we'd like it if you gave us feedback. But 
it, it's a you know it's a true pre-order in the sense that you know you're not paying full price for something you haven't seen. Yeah, and you get updates when it'll be the the full game. Yeah, and I I, I like that concept. I'm always very hesitant about offering to be a beta tester for a game because you know, we learned when we did a um, we've already mentioned World of Warcraft when we did a beta for World of Warcraft, and uh, you know I've I've done a, another beta for a game that I love uh, very much. It'll it'll sometimes burn you out on the game because you have to re retread your your achievements. Well, I never quite got into Diablo three. We, I mean, we talked about the, the, the failing of the, the, I guess, the DRM or the connection there. But at first, I didn't get into it because I didn't have internet in my apartment. Uh, I've, I think I've mentioned that before. So the whole concept of, of that uh, prevented me from playing it. But yeah, there was, it was definitely like, I was excited to have access to it that, that actually that took away from the excitement when the full game was, was actually out, that I was no longer that interested in playing, even though I was you know, super into Diablo 1 and Diablo 2. Well, in many of these games, especially the massive ones, they reset the clock when beta period ends. And so everything you've done just gets wiped out and you have to start over again. The min-maxers and so forth love the fact that they now know exactly how to get through the, the quests as optimally as possible and so forth so they can go through 17 zones and in 28 hours of game. Oh, the, the, min, the min-maxers are always going to find a way to, to make their eyes bleed. I, I, don't, I don't have any consideration or, or concern for, for their well-being. I, I'm wor- worried about the mere mortals here. <laughs> so another uh, sort of a, the current way for uh, people to, to get early into games or to spend their money early in, in games, which is this, in many ways a marketing phenomenon, is buying a game on Kickstarter. And that's, you know, essentially, I would say the last year or so that that's become a phenomenon. Oh, yeah, that's Um, been huge. And it's very important for small games. I'm not quite sure what magic it is that makes somebody's Kickstarter video or that becomes the word of mouth that gets you there. My assumption is that the root of those will generally be blog and Twitter campaigns. How do you guys feel about games like Planetary Annihilation and the Double Fine, like those established studios going to Kickstarter to get funding for their their titles? I I mean it feels it feels weird. I mean it feels the, the same way that I think people have reacted against Amanda Palmer for kickstarting her latest album and and getting more than a million dollars for it. I mean if a game like like FTL asks for ten thousand dollars and gets two hundred thousand dollars you feel really good about that but you see the game companies go in where it's like oh yeah we have a hundred thousand dollar budget and we're really you know we're kickstarting it it doesn't have the same warm and fuzzy feeling it doesn't seem spiritually aligned with at least the initial initial concept of the the platform right i i i (laughs) go ahead go ahead i've i've got to say i these game companies they're not massive activision ea level they're not the publishers and these game developer companies are fairly large groups they've done double or triple a titles but they cannot fund them on their own they're too expensive so what ends up happening in terms of the treadmill of death for uh, funding your game is you end up going selling your soul to ea or to activision or any of the the uh, big companies, uh, then late in the development process, you discover they're telling you time to ship. We're going to go. 
with whatever you have because you're not getting any more money or if you need a teeny about more money to make it something that you will feel good about, you're going to give up huge amounts of percentage and so forth and you may, you may barely recoup your, your costs by the time you're done. That sort of, of funding trap ends up usually happening even though distribution now is often largely electronic. And so you'd say, what are, are the publishers providing? Well, they're providing the seed capital. Kickstarter can do that. A brand new indie game group is not likely to have enough of a reputation to get a group of people to come in and fund them a, a million dollars of, of development. But a double fine can do that. And a double fine has proved that they know how to spend that amount of developer dollars. You make a very good point. I think what Brian and I are, are saying are, are, is not so much that they shouldn't do this or that it's 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 a misuse of Kickstarter, but just that, I mean, Kickstarter originated at, originally, it wasn't a transaction thing at all, where you you were sort of sponsoring art that you wanted to get made. With games, it's, it's turned more into a pre-order funding sort of thing. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it certainly influences the, the way that you think about the different uses of it. Certainly, companies like Double Fine or in exile who are making the spiritual remake of torment you know even though they they have the big budgets if it is a in in the case of torment it's it's something where the the game itself is very dear to to the hearts of many people that that played it that even though the the number is big it still feels like uh, something intimate the number is middle size big is dozens of millions Big, uh, for, big compared to ten thousand right. dollars. <laughs> yes, but but my my assumption is that two K Games spent twenty or thirty million dollars on Bioshock Infinite. I I don't know the number, but that I wouldn't be surprised. That's what makes the marketing question and and the pre sales and the kickstarters for me like a a weird like minefield where some of the games I enjoyed the most over the the past years and found the most meaningful are on the lower end of things uh, and more and more the the 20 plus or the 100 plus million dollar games are spiritually and artistically void not not saying that that's the case for bioshock i don't expect that it will be but it seems that along with those large dollar numbers comes some of the evils that we've talked about in curmudgeonly ways in in this podcast so speaking of marketing you know, one of the things that, that often comes up is sort of a feature checklist that we've talked about before. Does it have side quests? Does it have crafting? Does it have multiple branching storylines? Does it have separate endings? Does it have interaction? You know, does it have blue alien sex? I mean, you know, these things sort of get put in because it's something you can talk to and hype Maybe, up. Maybe, but that's there's also the God of War or the Gears of War, the, the War of War games, which are essentially the Jerry Bruckheimer productions of the video game world. You know they're going to be huge explosions and lots of bullets flying around and bullet casings and detailed weapons and so forth, and they're just going to sell based on doing that well, probably try to add something subtly different whether it's a, a new way to do cover or a new way to move or something something like that. Bruckheimer would be, do some you know new sort of camera angle or cut or, or whatever. But you know the audience is like that and it's, it's going to sell. 
doubling back to the indie thing that we've we've seen there was an interesting article i think was it in ours or was it in the the penny arcade report about how critical it is to hit the the day one buzz with an indie game tom was that what you were talking about earlier when you mentioned that I, I don't remember an article for it, but I, I do believe that the industry uh, lives by it and sometimes dies by it. Well, I think that the thrust of the article was an indie developer saying, if, if I give you access to the game in advance and you don't release the review of the game on oh, the that day... That was an that, article. Yeah, on, yes. on the day that the game is available to be sold, I lose. I miss out on my chance because for a $5 game or a $10 game, what happens is you read about it, you go to the website, you buy it. Yeah, it thrives on that instantaneous publicity and and digital purchase uh, cycle. And certainly the majority of the iOS games that I've bought in, I guess, the past couple of months, the the time in between when I heard of it for the first time and, and bought it is generally less than a day, uh, often less than, than 12 hours. Has has anybody has anybody found a good mechanism for discovery of iOS games? Because I I am at a complete loss other than word of mouth. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm cheating because effectively the kill screen emails I get are are word of mouth, but it's it's word of mouth from uh, a curator. I think I have some iOS blogs uh, which are are probably cynical pay us for placement but i don't i don't care i see things go by on those and well that, that's why i that's why i stay away from those i mean back in the day when i when i wanted a new game or i i was getting access to a console or something i wanted to try it out i go to game spy or ign and i'd go through their totally incomprehensible series of game classification you know action or adventure or action adventure or simulation or and i just sort by the top rated games and look and see what they had right as a way of vetting out something that might be interesting and, you know, kind of looking for the games that were in the 10 to $20 range. I, I just don't know of a good reliable way to do that for iOS or really even for the PC anymore. I mean, what you described is it's in these weird two categories where, well, so three categories for me. So there's the games I know about a few years in advance and it's inevitable that I'm going to get them games that word of mouth or through emails or games that, I sort of brute forced my way through Metacritic lists or, you know, doing a depth first search of recommendation lists <laughs> in the the app store where you know that there are cool games out there. Eventually if you if you follow enough links, <laughs> you'll you'll get to them. I mean, similarly to what I'll do in the Steam store, where I will just filter by Mac games and by Metacritic score. There's there's not that many Mac games that you know, maybe 500 or so on on Steam. Yeah, well, and, and a tip of my hat to the Steam wish list. Now that that exists, I'm I'm really taking advantage of that because what a great way to sort of flag a sixty dollar game and say someday I'm coming back for you. So Metacritic score, which I think is is uh yeah we, we danced around that one <laughs> right that that basically says you've got to have a lot of reviewers uh because that's going to help you and uh obviously you choose your reviewers wisely make sure that that you you actually know the the sorts of games given reviewers like and and don't give your game to somebody who you know only wants hardcore stuff and will think you're a little cutesy cutesy game is is a blight on the landscape that that sort of of thing that that kind of uh knowing the landscape of uh reviewer and pr community 
is uh, you know, a really hard thing that, that I would guess that the marketing professionals do well. Yeah, I, I read the whole thing about how these press embargo, the lifting of the press embargo is dependent on a Metacritic score. And I find it hard to believe they could even do that. Yeah, that, that, that seems, uh, seems pretty sketchy. Did you, did you see the Ars Technical article? I'm talking about the, the Ben Kuchero article about the, the article is why we don't support Metacritic. And it's because these games are given to reviewers and they say, you can do a day of release of the review, but only if you're going to give us a Metacritic score of 85 or higher. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's, that's some sketchy shit right there. And th- this sort of ties into the, the real CD underbelly. And certainly Ben Kuchero did a lot of writing on this before he went, I think he still does, but before he went to the, the Penny Arcade Report about... You know, just uncovering how much power these game companies have. Because if you're a game reviewer or your game reviewer site, which is more important, you're only useful to, to players for the most part if you release your review the day and date of, of the game's availability. Which you can only do if the publisher gave it to you ahead of time. That's right. And, you know, if you don't play by the rules, there's, they're, they're not compelled at all to give you access to the game. Right. It, it's circular, though. If they ban too many reviewers, then essentially they're they're not going to get any place either. Well, a stinker's a stinker. I mean, it, that I think I think the game companies understand that, but I I do believe there's a disproportionate amount of power because, let's be honest, I, I sort of think of these game these game blogs are not that different from the gadget blogs, right? So, do you guys read reviews before you buy games? In in my recent memory, I've only read reviews. Like six months after they've they've come out, in order to better analyze my my gaming experience. <laughs> oh, I mean, I absolutely plead guilty to that. I I take a look at reviews. Uh, I try not to go too far because yeah, you get the tone of the review within the first couple paragraphs, and sometimes I I determine I don't want spoilers and I don't trust them not to tell me something that that. Uh... So I typically don't read the the major game bloggers just because i'm not buying games the day that they're released and it's it's not super relevant to me i mean i follow a couple main news sites that pick up games like ars technica and then i try to read some of the more interesting bloggers that are out there but i lost my appetite for reading sites like the verge and gadget and gizmodo a long time ago and I'm sort of in the same position with these game blogs, you know, the article, 12 articles a day kind of sites, because there's just not enough uh, wholesome calories in those, in those articles in aggregate. I think it's a reason why Tom Bissell's articles come up so, so frequently. We reference them in this podcast because there's actual real analysis going on there. It's, it's more, you know, the dude's a fiction writer, nonfiction writer. He writes as if he was writing for, for Harper's, but he's he's writing about video games and i think that's something that is often missing from from video game journalism that that sort of critical or call it literary or or what have you but uh, analyzing games uh, for more than their feature list and that's what got me to play catherine years after it was released this is one aspect of what john gruber does with his tech reviewing as well which is i don't need to rush to be the first person to review i i want to have a a full contemplated review instead and my readers await for that right right that's because gruber is a franchise Uh, and but you have to have have worked your way up to that 
so that you have Gruber's credibility uh, on on the line. You know his his analysis being interesting and so forth. He's managed to pull that off. But to contrast that with say a joystick or uh, you know The Verge, any of the the gadget game dozen blog articles a day. Kotaku, one up, all these places, yeah. Right. Those, th- there is a, a niche in the ecosystem that, that, that calls for that sort of no, thing. I, I'm I, not here to say that those sites are bad. I think they can be very entertaining. I, it's just they're not for me anymore. <laughs> they, they provide fodder for brute forcing and just uh, reading titles of games. But I have to say, I mean, you know, if I'm doing a Google search and I want, an, you know, I want 500 words on something, they can often supply it. And I, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, see, I live and die by my RSS feeds. And at, at this point, I probably have a couple hundred sites and I skim through them. And that's, that's where I find stuff, uh, you know, whether it's things about news or things about entertainment or uh games or gadgets technology that that all just pours in there you know for me those blog uh streams are are my my information source and in in general just their headlines tiny number of them will will pull me all the way in to look at the article which might be a review of a game or or something like that you know, I'm a I'm a child of of my generation where I've never really gotten into RSS feeds that much, but for games or or whatever, uh, the social aspect of things is where I get a, a lot of my information. Uh, get I have you know a friend group that your has friends are, grown are into amazing a, on Facebook. It's just not even yeah. fair. Like it's they have they're ridiculously insightful, and it was great to meet them all at PAX. <laughs> Yeah, the friends group that has grown into the friends of friends group that reviews their experience with uh, with new games in in a thousand words. <laughs> but I mean, and, and those are the kinds of the things that are interesting. Have I linked the Tom Chick review of Europa Universalis before? Don't recall. I don't it. think so. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty crazy. He basically does a review of the game, speaking in the character of one of the the entities or the actors within the game. And so he's sort of revealing all these complicated mechanics by telling you a story. And it's fantastic. Makes me want to play the game, but I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) When we were talking about brute forcing games, brute forcing the discovery of games, we talked about Steam. I mean... Well, and specifically Steam sales. I mean, that's that's how discovery gets powered around here. I don't know know for you guys. Yeah, well, well, as I was going to say, you only have to read through those lists like that when there's not a steam style <laughs> and then the steam style makes things much easier basically just because the list of things you're looking through is is small when it jiggles old memories yeah. of games you once you once knew or thought of the synergistic combination of the wish list and the steam style is deadly because yeah i got they, an email from you like, hey dude this is on sale today it's like yes and, and now i can buy it from my iphone we're living in the future guys do you have the steam app on your on your mobile device I don't. The the people were talking about that, like the idea of having an app where you can't actually play any games on that device, but you can use that device to buy things in a timely manner. It's just like when when a friend told me about that on PAX, and it was just like mind blown. Yeah, well, so you can not only use it to buy a game, but you can use it to buy a game and then have it download on your PC at home if your PC at home is turned on. And you can also use it to spy on your friends list to see if so-and-so is online before you go downstairs and sit in front of the computer. And you can even do the Steam chat through your phone. 
This is this is just good technology. Like I don't even want to call this marketing. Hey, the, those those kids in Seattle know how to do it right. I'll tell you that much. So, what do you think of the bundles? I think my experience is similar to a lot of people's, where it seemed like a really good idea to start out with, and all the games were really good. And now, every time I've seen a bundle, it's been four games that I have and two games that I don't have. Like the whole bundle aspect of it has been working against it. You know, in addition to the phrase that you you can you can't get away from when you talk about this is bundle fatigue. <laughs> I was reading a, a Harvard Business Review article today about the implosion of the TED brand, and it sort of feels the same way. The way that these things have fallen in on themselves a little bit. I mean, it, humble indie bundle and, and and these sorts of these sorts of things. I don't know. Are there other bundles that are that are really big these days? There's like the like royale with cheese bundles or well, it seems like there's always a humble bundle going on these days though and then they, then they they paired with thq which is okay i mean that's their prerogative right but it's like wait a minute indie and then big publisher i i don't i don't get who you are anymore i mean another thing that the the humble bundles had going for them uh, speaking of you know the spirit of kickstarter is that they had the aspect of it where you could pay as much as you want and you know reward developers or as little as you want and just get the games if if, if you don't have money but then there's also the option there to to give money to like the electronic frontier foundation uh, which is often the closest thing that that internet folks have to uh, to activism well child's play also it's a go- it's a go-to one and, and it's always on there for the original games, or the the original bundles, rather, it felt like, and and I feel this way a lot about the 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 label indie games in general. When first came into popular use, it was something that you really wanted to to champion because you felt like that label made it a part of a a community and supporting indies is is a great thing, and you know we can pat ourselves on the back for doing that, but. At a certain point, you know, co-opted is probably not not the right word, but you know, people recognize that those words have those effects on people, and so suddenly, you know, every every piece of crap game has the support uh, your local indie developer <laughs> marketing angle on it. So, does anybody understand the economics of these bundles? I mean, my my general suspicion is that the game companies get almost nothing out of it. And that the, that they do it basically to to get your email address for a mailing list because uh, I discover that I get lots of emails from all, all the little game companies that have things that were in the bundle that I really wasn't interested in uh, when I do it. I think there is a tendency, especially for games that have a network component. You know, you give them away, or the indie games that are really cheap, you give them away and you generate buzz, and then people are more likely to buy them. But that sounds like. I'm a marketing weasel trying to get you to jump on my bundle. I mean, Tom, you've talked about a bunch of the the whole idea of devaluing of games with free 99 cents or or nothing. I mean, the Hundle Bundle or bundles in general seem like they have that effect where, you know, five five games for for five bucks and, you know, normally it's on sale for 10 bucks. It has a a similar effect on people that the Steam sales have where it's like, well, I, you know, eventually this will go on Steam sales, so I'm definitely not going to buy it full price. You know, I just have to wait till my quarterly 75% off time. <laughs> Which is, I think, gets all the way back around to why so many game developers stress the opening day when it is full price. It's the hardback book version of the game. And if we can get you excited to be in on the ground floor 
enough to pay the $10 for an indie or $60 for a AAA, then that's great. And we know that we're going to be able to do the paperback version of the game, even though it's exactly the same text, when it goes on sale and, and so forth. For AAA, it becomes $20 on Steam, and for indies, go into part of the bundles. That's that's just the way they, they dribble it out to, to get every last penny that you possibly can out of something that, frankly, has zero marginal cost. Sure. I linked the article that referenced the, the talk that Gabe Newell gave at a keynote many moons ago. Wow, in 2009. About how when they put the original Left 4 Dead on sale at 75% off, they got something like 1,500 times, uh, so 1,500% increase in sales as measured by dollars, not units shipped. So if if you sort of assume that you're not cannibalizing full price sales, which after a game has reached a certain age, I think it's a somewhat safe bet. You're just pulling in a lot of money, at least if you you know in within the Steam model of taking a a AAA title and then slashing the price. Though be careful, they were breaking new ground by doing that, and at some point we get the expectations get reset. Yeah, and the fatigue and, so there, and all this other. There will stuff. be people yeah. who who basically say, "I'm just going to wait for da 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 da." Yeah, and but maybe that's okay too. I mean, you know, if if we're all buying more games, I mean, we all have a lot of a lot of games in our Steam yeah, list we've we never play. ever played. <laughs> it's also one of those things where the rest of us can be happy being late adopters. Uh, if if early adopters are are willing to to pay the sixty dollars for the games and, and be excited about them and buy into that hype with console games, I've certainly been willing to wait six months or or a year to to get them for cheap and the steam sale or that sort of uh, marketing gimmick just works in my favor when i buy a game full price or at least when i have in the past couple of years it has been an act of commitment it has been saying you know i believe in you i love you i want you to succeed here take my money all of it you know i bought xcom i bought uh, amalur as i contemplate you know my next game that i buy i see it more as I'm exhausted. <laughs> I haven't slept. I want to play a game. I'm just going to drive into Best Buy and buy <laughs> something good and not think about it. But that's a separate, <laughs> that's a separate issue. <laughs> that's that's uh, gaming for for new debts. I think I, I, it, it's it's interesting as we're ta- we're talking about the the uh, marketing strategies of where where you price it and the curve and so forth, and that there's the exact same life cycle of. A movie, whether it's theatrical and then it's premium cable and then it goes to DVD and that's that's getting fuzzy with when it becomes uh, available for streaming and so forth and when it becomes available for streaming for free on Netflix and, and so forth. Through through each of these and, and the, the same sort of thing with, with books, hardback to paperback and people who will only read books once they come to the library it's it's you just have uh, people set their expectations for their media consumption. I you know I buy things only in paperback. I'll I'll I'm happy to wait an extra year for the Stephen King novel or something like that. Or this this author is the you know the best person in the world, and I've I've got to have his or her thing the day it comes out. And sometimes I'll try to buy pre-release. That that is a, a perfectly legitimate thing and and you have different bins of people 
spending their money in, in different ways depending on their excitement level. Well, and, and also level of, of consumption where I know the amount of books that I purchase at least, like there's no way that except for certain books like, you know, the David Foster Wallace biography that, that came out in, in the last year that with my backlog of, of books that it makes any sense to buy a hardback uh, book. And I think with games, it's it, it's a similar effect. The difference in gaming between gaming and, and those other two media is that gaming in, in many cases can be a social thing that you, you want to play it with your friends and so forth. And unless you get synchronized on going through the Left 4 Dead campaign or some other sort of networking network game, it, it isn't the same. Uh, it, 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 whereas movie consumption book consumption are generally solitary things although you know watching a movie with with family is 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 not but it isn't doing this with somebody else who has to have bought it at the same time i could try to poke holes in this but i'm going to support it with with some of these games the experience has a shelf life you can't go home again the best example i have of that is i remember reading the exuberant reviews that the penny arcade guys had of Chrome Hounds and how great the game was. And then I went to go and try to buy it and I realized they had torn down the servers that supported the network play like a year before. And so you could, apparently you could still buy the game on Amazon, but it was dead. That reminds me, the games that I did buy, two games the day that they came out, I think in 2012, which were Fez, which I actually had people over to my house to watch me play it and you know i fed them pizza and and there was beer there but it was a uh, a fez uh, a fez opening day party and uh of course journey mm. both of those that there is the the combination of the the digital distribution but also i mean both of those games had something special about them where there was a bit of mystery to them which i'm glad that like my my experience was was actually enriched ha- having played it on the first day before spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. So uh, anything else you, you guys want to talk about while we're here? Well, we, we left out. We, we haven't talked about television advertising, big media advertising at all. I know for myself, it's probably I don't watch enough television. And, and now I'm going to you know sound like a snobby. I only listen to NPR. But any television I watch, I fast forward through every single commercial. So it had better be a, a a very bright, colorful commercial to pull me back in. You know, okay, a Star Trek trailer will get me, but nothing, pretty much nothing else. Right, and literally, I only listen to NPR, <laughs> uh, and and I do not have cable. Right, so we're not likely to to be uh, representative samples for this, and and certainly, I don't think we know the the statistics. I certainly, my, lots of money is spent on television. They make ads on TV, and it, it's just it's just weird to see you know a movie ad and then a game ad. Uh, to me, that said, G Four Channel died. They they weren't able to sustain that. Which was, yeah, you know, that was a marketing creation. The 24-hour game cycle probably isn't there yet. <laughs> but, you know, you go to Korea, you get two channels that have <laughs> nothing but games, at least. Well, that's the eSports. Right. Is, is eSports a cynical marketing creation? Or is it, do you think it actually can have some you know, legitimate life on its own? Well, you see, you say it's a marketing creation. And I, my, my first reaction was to say... I, I'm asking. No, no, I, no, I'm just not. hear me out. 
so you say it's a marketing creation. My first reaction is to say, I'm not really sure that it sells more titles. You know, my, my first impression was it's marketing in the sense that I'm going to popularize this sports team so that people go and buy the jerseys for that sports team or they, you know, join the little league and whatever the, the analogy is. I, I can't think of one right now. But I think you're thinking more of just we can make money out of this even though nobody really wants to watch it, right? <laughs> Speaking of cynical. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the mar- marketing alone couldn't possibly be responsible for the the level of enthusiasm for for StarCraft, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's not really an American phenomenon. I mean, we, we've had, well, I, I just read a really fascinating article lamenting the death of competitive shooters, the way that the, the games have evolved in console and everything. It's just not the same anymore. But certainly League of Legends was born for competitive play, right? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, for esports things, how do the economics of that work? Is it just become like a sport where it then becomes advertising uh, to make money off of uh, competitive StarCraft? Yeah, I think it's kind of a WNBA thing, no offense. Like, can we make enough money off of this to keep it afloat? Can we get somebody to try to, you know, get the broadcast rights or to pick it up or to carry it on the internet? Can we run ads alongside it? Can we put t-shirts on the guys that are playing the games? Well, it, it, it is a, a weird thing. Uh, it's, it's obviously not traditional physical prowess that, that uh, people are, are demonstrating in being one of the, the top Quake 17 players or StarCraft or, or, or any of those. But if you watch one of those, those people do their stuff, they are clearly a tier beyond mortals. In the same way, NFL players are, are you know, not the same as any, anybody else who might you know, get, out, get on a but I, I, I think field. the analogy, and I'm being unkind, is more like curling, though, where you sort of you turn on the TV and you're like, <laughs> what the hell is this? And you go, huh, that's kind of, I, I can almost figure out what they're doing there. Well, there well, are, I, I, they're but, but it's about not like that, though, because... Of watching it, uh, but, but well, you're no, going to have no, somebody just... sarcastic about watching golf just as much as somebody else is going to say, I, I don't understand uh, football. Well, or... no, but people, people love to play golf and people love to watch golf. And I think right now, a lot of people love to play video games and a much smaller number like to watch other people play video. I mean, maybe I'm just too old to appreciate the whole YouTube video, you know, play phenomenon, watching other people's clips. And uh, also, you know, it looks like PlayStation 4 is betting on this in a big way. I'm still taking issue with the, the curling analogy because the where the curling analogy breaks down, even the football analogy breaks down, is that everyone who, who watch, watches StarCraft or, you know, you watch one of these videos, you've had the experience of, of playing it where it's something that you can directly connect to and so uh, immediately understand the level of, of, uh, of proficiency or, you know, as... Uh, as Tom was saying, the 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 tier of, of of mortalness of them because you know how you play StarCraft. <laughs> That's a good point, and I I don't always think of it as as the games that I play. Watching the games that I play, when you put it in that context, it gets a little little easier to to fit that into my worldview. I, mean, I know that there are a lot of games that make it into esports that I just haven't ever touched. Yeah, and and that's an interesting division between esports and p sports physical sports uh, i just i just coined that nice uh, is that i think a lot of people have never played football and and watch football but i think almost no one watches starcraft or counter-strike who has not played those games yes i uh, but some of that is also just the 
the physical requirements to do it are quite different. <laughs> I don't know. Counter-Strike is pretty demanding. No, I uh, just get stabbed in the back a lot by Brian, and that's the way it goes. Fine. <laughs> Humiliation. I know why I'm invited. <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, this brings us back to uh, Brian and my game of letterpress. <sighs> you're, you're, you're playing little words on purpose, aren't you? I, I just I'm waiting for my turn to come back so I can I can throw the game. Yeah. I'm, I, I've 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 made peace with the whole situation. I'm I'm sorry. I've, in this podcast, I've been doing the equivalent of of just shooting your younger sibling in in Halo and and making them not want to play anymore. Have you, I'm sorry have you for played that. with Tom? You should you should send him an invite. Oh, thank you very much. I really like that. <laughs> After you've slaughtered me the last few games. <laughs> What's it? It's called a Smurf. It's called a Smurf, Tom. Uh, so, uh, what have you been playing lately? Oh, we're gonna do that. Yeah. What if? What? What better artificial way to wrap up this podcast? Exactly. I I actually went and and bought uh, Anno twenty seventy. So what you has, to, you told me about that. So what is that game? It's been a it's been a breath of fresh air. I'm not sure if I like it yet, but I do really like the fact that it's different from SimCity. It's a city building game kind of that has these elements of trade. So the ice caps have melted and the world is made up of a bunch of small islands and the islands all can grow different things or they have different resources that you can mine. And so the way the game works is you set up a city or a number of cities across these islands and you are ferrying materials back and forth to make more complicated things and trying to balance your production against the ecological havoc that you're impressing upon the the land all these things it's it's an interesting game that lets me think about the the you know concept of stability and balance that that i that i play with a lot i mean one of the big gripes that i've had with a lot of the sim city games is it's almost impossible to create a stable society and either because of the platform i'm playing on or because it's just not as as well designed as i want it to be the game sort of gets into these states where it's flip-flopping back and forth and just you can never make it happy. Mm-hmm. And that that's not the kind of game I want to play. And Anno 2070 has a lot of that trademark Ubisoft uh, light blur. Oh, God. It has a trademark Ubisoft launcher, which, you know, I, I, I bought from Dust and wanted to play it. And the launcher crashed on me because I didn't have an audio jack plugged into the back of the damn computer. I mean, it, it just... It would not launch because it didn't have audio plugged in. And I got so angry, I walked away. But I, I, I gripped my teeth. I got through it. And uh, it's still a pain in my butt every time I want to play the game. I have to launch Steam, and then I have to launch the Ubisoft launcher, and then I have to launch the game. It's not bad. I, I'm waiting to make it a recommendation, but uh, it, I'm, I may. I just haven't spent enough time with the game. I, uh, I felt like I, I did my time. I, uh, I played Red Dead Redemption, which I... Oh, good man. Good man. Yes. Yeah, I, I think my, my takeaway from this is that the people at Rockstar Game are, are, are very good at characters. They're very good at, at designing small interactions between characters, great with dialogue. There are lines from that, that game that stand out amongst, you know, the best lines from westerns that I could recite for you, like when John Marston says to his kid, uh, "Ain't no secret, didn't get these scars falling over in church," or you know, talks talks to the old man and and tells him, uh, "We all have to have friends, old man. We all die alone, but we live among men." Uh, <laughs> but then 
I find myself in the position where I'm consulting a wiki to see how many missions are left because I just have to grind them out because there's so much filler of of the mission is to travel across the map on a horse. Even if you can uh, zap your way across the map, there are literally missions that are get in a stagecoach and drive across the map for for five minutes, <laughs> see see a clip, and then drive back across the map for five more minutes i agree with you on, uh, on those 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 were the yeah. the grand theft horse sequences yeah i, I love that game because it made me very nostalgic for the west and they they got some of those elements i could almost smell the sagebrush i mean they got a pitch perfect it's never been more fun to kill armadillos like <sighs> like the the traveling around and that environment, I, th- I think it was great. Riding the horse for the first few hours was great, but then it just reached a point where I made a mental calculation. I realized I had about 12 hours left in the game, so I just did it live, played it through. It was not something that I endured you know, rather than enjoyed, but it was, it was certainly something that I wanted to get over with because I was feeling the, you know, I had to finish it, of course, but the uh the reward versus time spent was uh was not there and i just started a, a game uh, thomas is alone today it's a hi-fi abstract platformer where you play quadrilaterals uh, jumping around the map in a a lush abstract world and lots of voiceover how about you, Tom? Yes, my my approach to being a unique little snowflake is playing Bioshock Infinite, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I amazingly think think they're doing a, a very good job. I there was a an article by I think Ben Kachera today, giving you permission to play it on easy, um, <laughs> and, and and it was really interesting because I, I normally play I'm not I'm not great at first person shooters, so I normally play it on you know normal. But he basically said, yeah, I played it on normal and hard to find out how hard it was. And I died a few times and realized I'm just wanting to, to see the world and, and see the story and, and, and interact with it. And uh, that, that it was fine to do that. And I am doing that now. And I, I recognize that I'm getting through battles that I shouldn't. I'm being really sloppy and so forth. But I'm also realizing that I'm still marveling at everything around me and uh yeah, enjoying seeing the the all, listening to all the side conversations and so forth and and so i'm probably getting out of the game most of what i want you're saying that your experience would not be enriched by having to repeat sections of the game over and over again yes be hit hit my head against the the door until it finally either my head or the door break open yeah in in other news, I took uh, my computer and made good on a pact I made with myself when I first built it back in, you know, 2010 or whatever, and finally installed a Crossfire graphics card setup on the machine. And tripled your framework, uh, frame rate on World of Tanks. No, it actually stayed the same, but I was able to crank up anti-aliasing to as high as it would go, which was somehow better. It was pretty cool. I was thrilled at how I didn't even have to install a driver. It just worked out of the box, which is, is always, I have to give credit. That it was a hard thing that they pulled off. And then found out that my machine intermittently just shuts off every once in a while now. <laughs> just the power goes out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was a cool idea. I, I still think it's a cool idea. Just, just not for me. 
All right. Well, I will be anxiously awaiting Bioshock Infinite dropping by $30 on Amazon. Yeah. It, it will definitely be worth it when, it when it does. This has been the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 18. Thanks for listening.